Junior Doctors Corner, the podcast that helps medical students and junior doctors like yourself not only survive but thrive in your careers. We cover topics including doctor well-being, career, and life outside of medicine. My name is Dana and I am your host for this podcast. Are you ready for a healthy dose of support, motivation, and inspiration? Then let's start this episode stack. Hi, Mr. Hayden Stevens. Thank you so much for joining me on Junior Doctors Corner. Uh, for our listeners who haven't had a chance to um, get to know you or know about your wonderful work, um, can you please, you know, share with us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a lawyer, um, so I urge your listeners not to turn off straight away. Um, I uh, have spent many, many years in the law. Um, uh, I think 20 plus years experience in the law. Um, and fortunately, I think from my own perspective, um, I've always acted for uh, people in disadvantaged positions or people who have suffered hardship. And I've done the majority of that work at a firm called Slater & Gordon, um, which might be known to some of your listeners, which is a firm that specialises in acting for people in disadvantaged positions. Um, I spent about 20 years at that law firm and then left that law firm uh, back in 2018 um, and really just to have a break and really concentrate on other things. And this year, you've done something very wonderful for the junior doctors in Victoria, New South Wales. Um, basically, everyone got together, well, in their respective states and launched a class action against their health services for the unpaid um, overtime that junior doctors have been doing. Um, can you please tell us um, what motivated you to help junior doctors? I mean, you mentioned that you have been working in the space of helping disadvantaged people. I guess compared to other people, we are fairly privileged as junior doctors. Um, so, you know, why us? That's a good point. Um, I suppose uh, it is true that junior doctors relative to uh, other other people working in different professions, um, I think have a, a arguably a, a brighter and more secure future, you could say. Um, having said that, um, certainly a, a couple of years back, I began to re read more and more about uh, people in a range of professions suffering um, wage underpayment or what, what commonly became known in the media as wage theft. Um, and, and you can see this occurring in, in many industries, such as hospitality and uh, in manufacturing and the like. And I became interested in this in this subject matter, not least because one of the frustrations as a lawyer, uh, particularly working for people in disadvantaged positions, is often um, you see an injustice or a wrong uh, being committed, but you're not able often to support or help that person because in many instances, the costs of legal costs in transacting that matter might outweigh the eventual benefit that the person uh, might gain. So in a, in a very simple example, a person in an employment dispute might be arguing over three weeks, five weeks, six weeks pay, and yet it's probably not wise for that person to engage a lawyer in prosecuting that claim because query very quickly a lawyer's time and a lawyer's fees would outweigh the eventual benefit. And I suppose that was a segue to thinking about these claims more generally, particularly employment claims, and wondering whether 
there was a way in which you could gather up those claims and prosecute them on a portfolio or group basis. And in my experience uh, as a lawyer, I've seen this work uh, really quite effectively, um, particularly uh, early on in my career where, for instance, um, I acted for victims of sexual abuse against the Catholic Church and the Christian Brothers, and then later in my career seeing uh, the uh, effective way in which the class action mechanism can um, prosecute claims in a cost-efficient way for a great number of people uh, against a single defendant where, where an injustice has occurred. And so it was really off the back of um, thinking about my experience and thinking about my knowledge of the law, particularly in the area of group actions and class actions, and un and wondering whether that that expertise or that experience could be applied in an area like employment law or wage underpayment. And it was really those two things joining that I became interested in this area. And, and you might recall at about maybe 2018, 2019, there was a lot of chatter, um, particularly uh, in the media and, and driven by a couple of very brave doctors at the time who were speaking very publicly about the pressure that doctors feel, particularly the early in their career their career um, around excessive hours and, and, and fatigue. And I became very interested in that. And, and it doesn't take long, really, when you look at um, a membership organisations such as the AMA um, and the Australian Salary Medical Officers Federation, when you look at the material that's published by those organisations, you quickly learn that there's a much deeper, much more complex story um, that, that was beginning to unfold for me. Um, as I learnt more about the plight of junior doctors, uh, not just in Victoria or New South Wales, really right across Australia. And why do you think that is that it's only just come to a head now? Because this is a very, I'm sure through your research, um, you've noticed that this is a very long-standing issue, especially for doctors. It's, it's a very good question and um, I've often wondered that. Um, I, I do think that... Um, Junior doctors today are perhaps approaching their profession uh, from a position of greater advocacy that they they can see that this is not sustainable. Um, they can see among their peer group that they're leaving the profession in droves because um, it's not sustainable um, and not and certainly not enduring and not enjoyable uh, from their perspective. I think also too that what what I have observed. Uh, particularly among membership organisations of the two that I've mentioned, is that really around 2016, 2017, you see that uh, they're very effectively surveying their junior doctors to receive their feedback. And I suppose when you're hit by very hard data around some of these issues, uh, survey material being one example of that, and you're seeing in black and white in front of you this overwhelming outpouring um, of, of grief, really, by junior doctors about their experiences in the workplace, then it, you know, it can't help but hit you between the eyes that there's a major problem here. Can you please explain to us how a class action works? And is this something that could have perhaps been avoided or prevented? Or the AMA has been working hard to advocate for us junior doctors, but you know, for some reason we've had to arrive at this point and we had to resort to a class action. Um, why do you think that is as well? Yeah, it's a good point you raise. I mean, I, I do think it's out of a sense of frustration and hurt, 
really, of cries for help not being heard by various health health authorities around the country that uh, junior doctors represented on occasion by by ASMOF and AMA feel um, that they now have to take action. And so in my early discussions with junior doctors in New South Wales, I quickly appreciated that particularly for some of them, they were drawing a line in the sand that they wanted to do something. Um, and, and one particular brave doctor in New South Wales or, or who had worked in New South Wales uh, decided that she would uh, act as lead applicant. And Rich, really, this is a segue to answering your, request, your, your question about how a, a class action works. What you have by a lead applicant is really a person who can share their experiences before the court in a matter which tests key questions of fact and key questions of law, but under the mechanism of a class action, a finding as to those questions of law and questions of fact can have broader application across a portfolio of people. And so those portfolio of people called group members then have the benefit of that uh, positive result, as it might be, uh, or, or determination by the court uh, by reason of that class action or by, by reason of the actions uh, and the voice, if you like, given to the action by that representative applicant. So in New South Wales, uh, off the back of really the courage of that junior doctor, uh, me, together with another law firm in New South Wales called Morris Blackburn, joined forces to represent that doctor and launch a class action in December 2020. Uh, and over the course of the last now six, seven months, uh, we've been working through the various stages of the court process in the Supreme Court of New South Wales. Um, and we're at a point now where just recently, in fact, just this week, um, junior doctors across New South Wales would have received formal notification uh, by their employer of that action, advising them of the opportunity to participate but more importantly, advising them that in circumstances where they don't wish to participate, uh, they can opt out. So that's really the story in a chronological way, if you like, of the New South Wales case. Uh, off the back of that work that I was conducting in New South Wales, particularly the research and interviewing and the auditing of wage records and rosters, and boy, aren't your rosters and wage records complex? I've never read anything like it. But off the back of that hard work, um, I was approached by the AMA and the Australian Salaried Medical Officers Federation in Victoria by the leaders of those organisations to say, hey, listen, we think that there is a major problem in Victoria, again, off the back of the feedback they've received by their members uh, through the survey material, they could see that there was a, a major problem with uh, excessive hours, burnout and unrostered, unpaid over time. They could see that their doctors were doing enormous hours, but these were these hours were not being recognised by um, their employer. Uh, and so over the course of recent months, we've been able to launch several class actions in Victoria on behalf of uh, those doctors uh, in prosecuting for their rights. And the reason I speak in the plural in Victoria, that is to say that there have been several actions, is that different from New South Wales, where there's one health authority known as New South Wales Health, in Victoria, there are some 38 different health services that operate across Victoria. And those 38 uh, health services are of themselves separate employers 
over the group of employees that work at hospitals within their health service. So in the case of, for instance, uh, Monash Health, as an example, uh, they have hospitals in Clayton and in Dandenong and several other centres. Those doctors would then need to pursue a claim against Monash Health to prosecute their rights uh, for them to, to, as I say, seek justice for this for this problem that that is occurring throughout Victoria. I don't envisage that we'll one day get to necessarily 38 actions queued up at the court, but you can appreciate where you've got major centres around metropolitan Melbourne and, and other major, major regional centres, it doesn't take long for you to cover, say, 70 80% of the doctor-in-training population by, say, identifying the first 10 or 12 health services. And so with all these class actions that you've, you know, put through, what do you hope to achieve, like, in in a practical sense? Is it that in the letter of the law there would be, you know, stipulations? What does this actually bring about? Well, I hope lasting change. I do think that uh, doctors who have uh, performed long hours uh, have worked those hours I think uh, they are deserving of pay for those hours, full stop. Um, the second thing is that I do think that um, this issue of, of the burden that has been placed on junior doctors across Victoria and across New South Wales in the cases that I'm directly dealing with, um, it is systemic and widespread. This is not the case of a few bad apples. Um, and in that instance, um, when we took when we look to this issue of lasting change, you know, I do hope that this sends a very clear message to those health authorities that their systems and processes and their management of their junior doctor workforce changes as a consequence of this action. The third is really, I think, by shedding a light on these issues, you would hope that the employers of these junior doctors, so the health authorities, you know, actually adhere to and and comply with their very obligations that they agreed to under either the award in the case of New South Wales or the enterprise agreement in the case of the Victorian doctors. So basically kind of, you know, abiding by the rule book. That really is the third consequence we hope to achieve through these actions. I myself, you know, once upon a time worked in hospitals. Uh, thankfully, I've escaped that environment uh, as a junior doctor. And, you know, certainly amongst my peers and even myself, I have actually come across um, senior doctors or head of departments who actually say to the junior doctors, you are not allowed to submit, you know, overtime paperwork to claim your overtime. I will not, I refuse to sign it. I will not pay you for it no matter how many hours you stay back for. I would have thought this is something that's illegal in the first place. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how they even have gotten away with this for so long. Um, how does this class action help mitigate this sort of thing from happening again? Gee, the story you tell I've heard so many times, you know, I, I've been told by my supervisor I can't claim over time for that duty. Um, you know, when you look back at the great, Cases, you know, so I'm a lawyer, like I take an interest in uh, particularly those cases that have won at court um, and have uh, have changed the course of how 
we conduct ourselves, whether it be us as a society or whether it be a corporation or whatever it might be. So not to be flippant about it, when you look back at, you know, cases involving, say, asbestos, for instance, you know, asbestos litigation um, really started in, in, well, started in the 70s and 80s, but really the significant victory started to take place in the late 80s, early 90s, and it's really as a consequence of calling to account asbestos manufacturers, asbestos miners, it's really calling them to account for producing this product that has meant that that product today is no longer produced. I don't mean to say that litigation is always the, or sorry, is the sole way in in shedding light on these issues. It's not. It's only one part of of, of a number of ways in which you can bring advocacy to a particular issue. But certainly, given my experience, I see it as often a very effective way in uh, bringing justice and most importantly, as a consequence of shedding light and calling to account this behaviour, you're able to then change that behaviour by that corporation, if that be the case. And so in the case of these, these matters where we're dealing with wage underpayment, obviously, but also what 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 has occurred where you've got junior doctors working these hours and are having the very conversations that you've just described, you would hope that as a consequence of being called out, if you like, for that behaviour, that that, that behaviour that you describe uh, will cease. I think the thing that struck me in this litigation is that often when you're dealing with a corporation you are seeing, albeit it can become sometimes dishevelled and disorganised and non-compliant, you are seeing at least in a, in a corporate environment some semblance of structures and some semblance of perhaps identifying where the wrongdoing is. Um, it's certainly in health, and this is no necessarily, this is, I was going to say, no fault of anyone. Of course, it's fault of someone, but... Um, it's really on a on the basis of so many years of um, this area being allowed to behave in this way that these become issues of legacy and issues of of that are very much embedded into the system itself mm. to the extent that where you describe the very conversation that you have with that consultant or registrar becomes an accepted behavior. Mm. You know when we think back to that question you asked earlier as to why this has been able to occur for so long, it's because it's become very accepted. And so when you have, for instance, a junior medical workforce or a doctor in training who, frankly, is at the bottom of the ladder at the start of their medical career, and when you look at the fact that they are, uh, in fact, judged by their peers or, sorry, in this instance, by their supervisors and are in competition often with their peers, and themselves junior doctors being on annual contracts, you can see that there's this environment of vulnerability. And so when that consultant or registrar says that conversation, as you've just described, you shall not do, who's going to have the courage in that environment to speak up and challenge? Mm. And so you can see both with that embedded behaviour and also the position of vulnerability that junior doctors find themselves in, how this behaviour is is allowed to go on for so long. Mm-hmm. And then what's amazing, you know, really, when, I, when, when you're faced with that, with that landscape that I've just described, that I've interviewed well, well over $100 doctors 
And the the stories that I hear are really quite consistent about, you know, I lodged a claim, they said no. Um, I spent three hours on the weekend doing discharge summaries, but they said discharge summaries aren't recognised as a duty for overtime. I did overtime when we had to um, hand over between shifts, but because the incoming shift started at the same time as my roster conclusion finished, then in those circumstances, because there was an adequate time for a handover, I had to stay back and hand over. So that's more overtime. And on it goes. But, you know, what's what's interesting, even in the, the hundred or so doctors that I've spoken to and the, the many that I've spoken to at these membership organisations, is that there are, in fact, pockets of good behaviour. There are, in fact, pockets of a rotation here or there or a hospital here or there who's actually gone to great lengths to help doctors claim overtime, to make the actual process of claiming overtime an easier process, that have said to doctors in the case of a consultant, please log your overtime because by doing so, we understand the true hours you're doing and as a consequence of that, we can then budget better for next year and more staff. And so you can see, you know, how it's frustrating from my perspective because from one perspective, you can see how quickly it can be fixed. But, of course, on the other, uh, uh, you can see, obviously, the wrongdoing and the hurt it's causing right across, you know, in your case, your your former peers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree it really probably started uh, becoming a cultural thing because we want to do the right thing. We want to help our patients. We want to make sure that they are safe. So, you know, we do whatever we can to, to stay back if we need to. And then um, there's the issue of, uh, you mentioned the power imbalance. Um, so the consultants and registrars, are the, oh, mostly the consultants really, are the ones making the call on whether or not we can claim our overtime. And then secondly, I guess there are, junior doctors who I guess also they because they want to please their bosses they want to get onto training programs um they thought well this is going to be my my ticket in if I work extra hours and and show them that I'm very dedicated and I won't take you know extra pay um what do you think about once this class action goes through and Wanting to continue that sort of behaviour of of using um, unpaid overtime as a way to um, get their foot in the door with their training program or bosses. You're right to mention that this is very much a cultural issue, um, and I think when you've seen in other organisations over time where there is a, a real desire to change the culture, it does require heavy investment. So it does require. Uh, in this instance, the leaders of those organisations saying we're going to invest heavily in training and education and stay to that course for uh, at least several years as people move through the system and accept the, the new way, if you like, of behaving. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, you know, when I, when I speak to doctors, and it is right that they're in a, there is this power imbalance and they do feel vulnerable and they do want to kind of strive hard to to impress, it's interesting that the common theme is really, and you just touched on this, is really around patient care. They're not often wanting to go home until that ward round duty has been completed or until imaging results are back, until that patient has been properly cared for and the treatment cycle is finished. And that is their duty. You know, that's what they've signed up to. And so I think one of the most disturbing statistics in the 
in the health check surveys that have been conducted right across the country is a junior doctor saying that, in fact, in many cases, I think something like 60% of junior doctors survey saying that um, they've made a clinical error as a consequence of feeling fatigued or tired due to excessive hours. And so that's quite disturbing because it actually goes against the grain of, in fact, the reason that they're there, but also against the grain of really why they want to be there. You know, they want to be actually doing the right thing by their patients. And yet, because of these these hours that they're trying to keep pace with, that they are even failing at that. You know, from, from a legal perspective, these are important parts of the puzzle. You know, this is all very important, I think, that if given the opportunity in these cases where we are before the court, that we share these stories because they're important stories, that these doctors are doing their very best on the whole. And unfortunately, um, the business model um, uh, within each state, certainly in New South Wales and Victoria, and I'm sure elsewhere, uh, heavily relies on what is essentially their free labour to perform these duties. And, And I think from my own perspective, when I look at the provisions of the Fair Work Act and I look at the the instruments such as the Enterprise Agreement and the relevant award, I, I do think that's non-compliant and I do think it's actionable and I do think that these cases have got, you know, reasonable prospects of success because of that. And um, in many, many ways, very, very proud to act for these junior doctors. And, yeah, thank you for, you know, putting your time and energy into this because I think that it does take the right third party or outside person to come along and and say hey this is actually not okay and we need to do something about it yeah and i you know i'm i'm one person um fortunately in new south wales i've i've joined forces with with morris blackburn as i've indicated earlier and in victoria uh, i've joined forces with a law firm called gordon legal who are also expert in in areas such as employment law and class actions and do you anticipate that other junior doctors in other states of Australia will follow um, suit with, you know, alongside New South Wales and Victoria launching their own class actions? Yes, yeah, certainly in discussions I've had in, in Western Australia and in South Australia um, and in the ACT, they're watching these issues with, with a great deal of interest. And are you allowed to say where you guys are up to now? Because these sorts of types of litigation can take months or perhaps even more than that to to sort of finalise. Is that correct? Yes, um, more than that. I'm sad to say that the, the court process is a very thorough process but also a very slow process at times. And so if you look at the the world of class actions more generally, it's not unusual for a, an action of this kind to have perhaps a year and a half to two and a half years in duration. Having said that, I think in both Victoria uh, and in New South Wales, we will impress upon the defendants that we ought not wait that long, uh, that we should, if there is a genuine desire to do this, we should be engaging in discussions to to try and resolve these mem- these matters as early as possible. I do understand, though, in, in litigation, that once you start in the court process, there are important steps to to complete, such as the exchange of documentation, such as clarifying the issues in dispute, um, and there's some other procedural matters 
uh, such as informing the potential group members of this action. These are things that we're now going through, but I would gather that at some point there will be the opportunity for the parties to, to discuss these matters and uh, certainly from my own perspective, and I know I speak on behalf of my clients, that if we can, if we can bring earlier resolution to these matters, then, then for the better. Oh, absolutely. And uh, one more question I just thought of. So you mentioned that there would, uh, there is, uh, with every class ac- action, there is a lead applicant. So is the lead applicant um, the person's name public knowledge? And if so, are there any measures in place to protect this person? Because I can imagine uh, these junior doctors who, if um, they've put their name forward, they might be putting themselves kind of on the back foot when it comes to employment. Like, you know, certain departments might see their name and go, oh, I'm not hiring this person. This person's the one that's, you know, leading the class action. Yeah, it's been difficult um, at times to, to, to identify doctors who, who are willing to place themselves in that position. Um, the, the lead applicant in the New South Wales proceedings, it, it is public. I, I make a very deliberate intent, attempt when I'm speaking about the cases more broadly, whether it be New South Wales or Victoria, not to mention them by name. I don't do that because they're necessarily suppressed. In other words, if anyone interested, you could go and search the file and find it. Um, but I'm anxious for the very reasons that you speak of to where I can at least shape the conversation more about what doctors at large are experiencing rather than the lead applicant and their identity. I I think another thing that's important, particularly in the Victorian proceedings, is that we're fortunate to have the support of of ASMOF, the Australian Salary Medical Officers Federation. Um, I'll get to say that quicker the more I get into this case. Uh, and also the AMA, um, and they're both very reputable bodies. They're both well-led, and those bodies and the doctors who who serve on various committees have been very, very helpful in advocating this issue, particularly in Victoria. And, again, uh, they've done that because it's an important issue, but they've also done it because to really support the lead applicants uh, so that, that they're not placed always in the public eye apart from obviously their work they're doing on the, on the court documentation, because in every case uh, they're, they're prepared to be known but also prepared to, to one day face the court and tell their stories um, and, as I say, be a very effective representative of, of the stories of doctors right across those states. Thank you so much for sharing that. This has been such an interesting conversation. Thank you. Yeah, I, look, I've really enjoyed it. Um, it's often in these instances you're, you're left with just a few lines here or there, but um, as your listeners could probably appreciate, uh, you know, it's a much more complex and at times a much long-winded story about uh, their plight. And I think it's uh, programs like yours are very important because it affords uh, the participants in that story to actually have the opportunity and the time to share it. And uh, I've enjoyed it. Uh, So thank you very much. Thank you. And so this last question I ask all of my guest speakers, um, please share with us some things that have been keeping you sane during these very crazy times. Yeah, they are crazy, aren't they? Um, I have three children. They're aged uh, 16, 14 and 12. And so 
um, homeschooling uh, is okay, you know, it, it keeps us How busy. do you uh, find time to do this and look after three well, children yeah, homeschooling? I, I, I've got a very, look, it's, it's a team effort, my wife and I, but um, in the house you have no choice but to participate in making sure that, you know, they're connected on the net and they've uh, they've downloaded the right things and, you know, they've got they've got their things working for their homeschooling. Look, it's tough, but you know, as I keep saying to, to friends, you know, relative to other people uh, who are who are working probably in smaller confines than I am, um, you know, I'm very privileged and, and very very fortunate. Um, I do exercise, so so fortunately, uh, living in New South Wales, our premier has left open the window for us to still exercise during the day, and so I'll often uh, go running once or twice a day, and then. Um, we're, we again are very fortunate. We live in a, a suburb that's close to the beach, so we uh, we get the opportunity to jump in the water too. So, um, as you can tell, as I'm answering this question, life's not too bad. But boy, I don't know how I'll be in four or five weeks' time if this thing's going. So, well, I really do hope that things get better for you guys, and I hope that you and your family, you know, stay safe and well. well thank you so much for your time, Hayden. That's okay, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Dana. If you really liked that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode.